Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, and welcome back for the second episode of 2022. Hopefully, those of you who have been longtime listeners enjoyed last uh, the last episode, the reunion of John and Adam, uh, my good buddy who started this podcast with me uh, way back in 2016. So we hope to do that every once in a while and uh, get back together because it was a lot of fun and uh, we miss, miss doing that together. So hopefully that will be more of a regular occurrence. Before I get to this week's guest, uh, go to www.thedeconstructionist.com. That is your one-stop shop for everything. You can listen to our entire back catalog of episodes, read our blog, check out our web store and grab a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a pint glass. You can link to us on social media or help support the podcast via our Patreon. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single new episode and tell a friend. Word of mouth is actually how we've grown over the years, so we appreciate that in advance. If you enjoyed the music, the theme music is by Forrest Clay. You can pick up his brand new EP, Recover, anywhere you find your music. This week, I welcome Kirsten Powers. Kirsten is a CNN senior political analyst and New York Times bestselling author whose book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts, dropped on November 2nd, 2021. Kirsten formerly was a columnist for USA Today, The Daily Beast, American Prospect Online, and The New York Post. The Columbia Journalism Review called her an outspoken liberal journalist in a sea of opposition at Fox News, where she previously served as a political analyst. Her writing has been published in the Washington Post, Elle Magazine, Slate, The Wall Street Journal, and Salon.com. This week, we discussed her book, The Current State of the World, and how we give and experience grace to those around us with whom we disagree. I had a really great time chatting with Kirsten, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, I give you Kirsten freaking Powers. Right. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, Kirsten Powers. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So excited to Absolutely. talk to you. Yeah. How many people, you know, accidentally call you Kristen? You probably get that a lot, right? Um, <laughs> I get, I get Kirsten more than I get Kristen. So, okay. um, but I get Kristen too. I get a lot to the point that I don't even notice it. And so <laughs> people will later be like, oh, I'm so sorry that I said your name wrong. I'm like, I... <laughs> didn't even notice. Uh, because when I was growing up, nobody was named Kirsten. Like the Kirsten Dunst came after me. Um, and oh, so yeah. it was like one of these, I just cursed my parents for giving me this name, you know, that every, and I grew up in like Fairbanks, Alaska. It wasn't like everybody just had very normal names, you know, biblical names. And, yeah. um, and it always like first day of class was like Kirsten and whatever, <laughs> you know, and I was kind of shy and I was just, Oh, it's just so horrible. Oh, that's and I funny. Told yeah. them, as soon as I turn 18, I'm changing my name. Uh, you didn't though. <laughs> I didn't because then I kind of grew to like it and I appreciated that it was kind of unique. When I went to high school, there was an older 
girl who was very popular and her name was Kirsten. So it helped me a lot. Like everyone knew how to say my name. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I got off easy. John yeah. is a, about the most basic name <laughs> yeah. you could get. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks parents. Yeah. yeah. But you know, like when you're a little kid, you just want to fit in. Right. I mean, I guess now yeah. all kids have like crazy names, but <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> it's gotten very strange. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that you grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, but obviously you're not there now. So how did you, how did you go from Fairbanks, Alaska to doing what you do for a living today? <laughs> That's a great question. There's really no good explanation for it. Uh, I, 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 I basically, so my, my mother is from Arlington, Virginia, which is a suburb of DC. So, uh, I, so I guess the real question is how did my mother get to Alaska? <laughs> um, but which was, you know, she, she was an archeologist. She and my, both my parents were archeologists. They met in grad school at the university of Wisconsin and they, went up to work for the University of Alaska on kind of an adventure and thought they'd stay for a couple of years and ended up falling in love and staying there. So anyway, I used to, to the extent that we traveled outside of Alaska, which we didn't do a lot because back then people didn't travel as the way they do today. Um, we would go see my grandparents. And so I always loved DC. And then as I got older, I was always very, my family was very politically minded. And so we always talked about politics. And so I was always really drawn to DC because of politics. And so I went to the university of Maryland, um, which is very, you know, right outside of DC. And, um, and I just knew I was going to live in DC when I graduated from college. And so, yeah, I ended up, uh, and so I, I, you know, had my grandparents not been there, would I have necessarily moved from Alaska to the East coast? I don't know. I might've, but I think that was sort of the reason that I did it. And then I, you know, ended up, you know, starting to work in DC right out of college. Um, and my first big job was in the Clinton administration. And so I kind of got into the political slipstream and, uh, cause I had volunteered on Bill Clinton's campaign and then it led to a you know, job on the transition team, which led to a job in the administration. And then I, um, you know, from there went to um, America online during the like tech boom. I was a vice president for international communications there. And then I, I had moved to New York and I kind of fell back into politics and I started working on campaigns and doing work for the democratic party in New York. And it was when I was doing that, that I started doing TV. So that was like a second career. Uh, it was, and it just, it, it was unexpected and I just, you know, started doing some commentary and it just kind of took off and, you know, and I, and I, I wanted to write. And so I started writing and, and I pretty quickly got a column at the New York post covering the, uh, Obama's, uh, 2008 campaign. So the democratic side of the campaign, and, um, one thing led to another and here I am. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I always have uh, such. I'm always so impressed uh, by by folks who do what you do because it's it's got to be insanely difficult and probably oftentimes frustrating when you're asked to uh, comment on something that's very complex and nuanced, but squeeze it into like a two minute soundbite. Yeah. That has to be difficult. It's not difficult for me anymore because I'm so used to speaking in sound bites. In fact, if you if people give me more time, I like run out of things to say. <laughs> so, um, like it was kind of interesting when I started promoting the book, and I was like, "Oh, I can talk for longer than ninety seconds." Um, so I um, 
I, but I do, what frustrates me is the oversimplification, you know, and that, and the, and just the kind of the mentality of the media, you know, the, the Washington media, which is to be very cynical and to always be finding things that are wrong and, you know, not paying attention to good things that are happening. I wrote a column today about Biden. I was never a big Biden like booster or anything, but you know, I think he's done a pretty good job. And I think the media has just, you know, they just find every little thing to complain about, you know, without having any context of what he inherited. Right. And, you know, focusing on like, oh, you didn't get this legislation passed when like nobody cares about that. You know what I mean? Like in terms of the average voter, they just don't. So it's not, I mean, there's not a poll that shows that anybody is like, has a low opinion of Joe Biden because of Build Back Better. People have a low opinion of Joe Biden because we're in a pandemic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like people are unhappy and the president gets held accountable for that, you know? So, um, yeah, so I think that kind of oversimplification and the idea that if you're seeing something good, you're somehow, you know, a sap or, you know, not sophisticated or something like that. It's that, that just gets very, like, tiring. Yeah, and it, it's very interesting, too, because, you know, growing up, my background is my degrees in history. And so a lot of that, obviously, was poli-sci classes and yeah. stuff like that. And so it's interesting to see like how many people just in the general public don't even understand how the legislative branch works and like how difficult it is to get anything passed. Exactly. And it's not the president, you know, obviously he's, he's pushing for certain things to to pass, but it's really your congressmen who are and women who are, who are trying to push this stuff through and just to get the votes that they need to even pass something is, is just this insane process. That's what I'm saying. Like this oversimplification of like Joe Biden promised that he was going to do X, Y, and D and he's not passing legislation. He doesn't have the votes. Like, I I don't like, he's not a magician. He's a president, you know, like he can't like magically like create people who are going to vote for his legislation. You know, it's just, it's like, let's just be honest about the fact that he has a very slim majority one of the senators doesn't want to go along with him in his very slim majority. So there's not a lot he can do, you know? So it's, and not one Republican will support what he's trying to pass. So, yeah, but that's just like, whoa, that's just so complex for, for the media for some reason. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things you talk about in your book, um, you know, that we've talked about a lot on the podcast is just this dualistic mindset and, and and how fractured we've become and how anything that one side is is pushing for the other side you know completely tries to shut down and even when you're trying to get votes for something everybody wants something and right. so like just the nature of how the original bill is generally never the final version of that bill because everybody's like well I, yeah. I'll give you my vote if you tack this thing onto it right. and so by the time we get to that process it looks very different than what it probably did originally right. you know yeah which is totally normal, but the media treats like something problematic or, you know, the bill started out as this much money and now it's been cut down. It's like, right. Cause that's, that's literally what happens every single time. Yeah. People <laughs> just need to watch that one episode of the West wing, yeah. you know, where they, they break it down. It's great. <laughs> anyway. So, um, so what exactly talk about the thing that the thing or things rather that inspired you to write a book about grace. Cause this is a very uh, timely topic I think to talk about. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and I was living in the middle of this insanity and 
I just got to a point where I was like, this is not sustainable. Like I'm miserable. I tired, exhausted. I had chronic fatigue. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I felt like, I mean, the, one of the subtitle of the book is, you know, how to coexist with people who drive you nuts. I mean, really, <laughs> I felt like I was being driven crazy. And because so much of what was being said wasn't true or sort of this upside down world where you just would be like, what? Like that didn't happen. You know what I mean? It just was, um, you know, I was used to being on with people who thought differently than me, but we weren't really disagreeing about the facts. We were disagreeing about interpretations or values or worldviews, world right? Like it wasn't like actually somebody sitting there and claiming that the sky was yellow, you know, and you having to be right. like, the sky's not yellow, you know, like it's just, and so I was really getting, really having a hard time. And I was noticing that everyone around me was having a really hard time, but I hit a wall in late 2018 where I just realized that my, not only was I miserable, but that uh, my behavior, like particularly on social media and the way I was thinking about a lot of people, um, really, you know, contempt and even hatred at times, um, was not aligned with my values. And I just was like, this is not who I want to be. This is not even who I thought I was. Like I, I didn't even know that I could hate people so much and, um, and that I couldn't really say I was a Christian. I mean, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was a Christian, but like, love your neighbor, love your enemies. I was not in any way doing that. And so I, I just had this intuition that grace was the thing that was missing and, it, I wasn't really able to have grace for people and I didn't see anybody else having grace for people. Just, just the brutality of the way people were treating each other. Right. I just, um, and so I, I wrote a column saying, I write for USA Today. I wrote a column saying, um, you know, our culture is toxic. I'm participating in this and I don't want to participate in this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And here are some places where I think I've gone wrong and I'm going to do better. And then, I sort of looked at my life and said, how do I get from here where I am today to where I want to be? How do I get to be, you know, a person who is aligned and, um, you know, and really more the person that I wanted to be. And that's, that was the, the story basically of this book. Yeah, and at the the beginning of the book, obviously, you look at some different uh, figures in history who have who have dealt with that sort of divisiveness and sort of how they dealt with it. And um, and, and I th I thought it was apropos since uh, the week uh, that we're recording this happens to be uh, the week that we are celebrating the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And you talk about him uh, at the beginning of the book and kind of how you looked at his uh, his work and and the history of his work. Uh, so talk about how. Uh, his work kind of inspired you when you first started digging into what is it, what does grace even mean? Yeah. Well, I think I thought, you know, I started to think who are people I need, like, you know, of course I could say like Jesus had grace and he loved his enemies and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, that's not, I need someone that's like a little more, you know, like someone who has like existed, you know, somewhat, you know, more recently. Right. 
and like a person I could look at and be like, who is somebody who's been up at some up against something really awful um, and has maintained a position of grace. And it wasn't just MLK. It was really all of the civil rights heroes, right? If you look at John Lewis, you look at Ruby Sales, who I interviewed for the book and it, it kind of put things in perspective for me because a lot of, a lot of times I would feel, well, I can't have grace. These people are so horrible. Like that would just be letting them get away with it, which is of course not what grace is. And I get into that in the book. Um, but like, like I'm actually supposed to hate them. And, you know, I know, I know, you know, you're supposed to love your enemies, but no, this is different. Right. And it really, when you look at the civil rights icons, what you see is that the, there is just no way I could say that my life is more difficult than what they were facing. It's just, it would be ridiculous to say that. And, um, and they were facing down such evil, you know, and really facing it down, like literally like standing face to face with it. And their lives were in danger and they were fighting for their humanity and just basic rights to exist. Um, and yet they never demonized people, right? And they loved people. And one thing people have to understand is that when MLK is talking about loving people, he's using the, you know, they, they studied, they were Christians, but they also studied Gandhi. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these ideas are in most religions, right? So it's not, um, it's not just in Christianity, but it was the love of humanity. It wasn't the, it wasn't like, you know, it was agape love. Um, so, you know, as most people listening probably know, you know, in the Greek, that's more of a, a general love for humanity. It's not a, I love my sister or I love chocolate. Like that's a different kind of love. And so it was seeing for them because they were believers, seeing God and even the worst people. Right. And they did that mostly to protect themselves. Um, because as Nietzsche says, if you're going to fight the monster, don't become the monster. And because typically what happens is what was happening to me is you start to become like a worse person because you're the other person is making you so angry and kind of dragging you down to their level. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I spent a lot of time reading and also realizing they trained a lot. Like this was not something that they just were like, Oh, we're just going to love people or we're just going to have grace. Like, they had, you know, trainings where they were, you know, they enacted like what was going to happen when they went to the lunch counters and those kinds of things. And they, to get to the point where like John Lewis says in one of his books that no matter what somebody did to you, you would never move to that level of hatred, you know, um, because, you know, MLK said hatred is too great a burden to bear. It was recognizing that it's, it's a burden that you'll bear. It's not the burden that the other person will bear. Like it's, um, and so that really helped me put it in perspective of the times when I was like, it's too hard or this isn't the time. And it's like, no, I mean, that's just, that's just not right. Like this actually is the time, like this is what it's for, uh, before Trump, I didn't struggle with this really. So, you know, I could have said like, yeah, I love my enemies, but who are my enemies? Like, I don't. 
what does that even mean? Right. It's not until you get actually face to face with something and you're like, Oh, I get it now. Like that's what this is for. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you comment in, in the book that, uh, you, you have this comment that struck home to me because I remember saying almost exactly the same thing, um, in, in relation to like how your role changed on, on TV once Trump became president. And I remember, I'm like, you know, I can argue with somebody all day on the best form of policy, uh, to fix the immigration issue or global warming or whatever, but, uh, that's not the conversations that we're having anymore. Right. You know, it's, it's, we're not talking policy anymore. It's just throwing out slurs like libtard or yeah. Trump or whatever. It's just, it's devolved into this kind of idiocracy level. Uh, it's not even dialogue at this point. It's just shouting on Twitter into the abyss, you know? And, uh, and so you talk about just how we kind of devolved into even more of this black and white or dualistic kind of society. Um, you have this great quote at the beginning of the book too, where you're kind of explaining what grace means to you. And I, and I, when I think of like dualism and kind of the dualistic roles we find ourselves in now, this kind of hit home, especially the second part, you say it, grace enables us to see the divinity in every person, no matter what they've done, what they believe or who they voted for. Grace is giving other people space to not be you. Yeah. I thought, Oh, that second part hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know what? People get to not be you and not be evil. Yeah. Um, and and that's hard. And that was really hard for me uh, because I was very judgmental. But, you know, as I write about in the book, so, yeah, we live in a very dualistic society. We are, Our entire political system is dualistic. It's Democrats versus Republicans, right? So everybody is sort of forced into these these two spaces where very few people actually fit. Right. Um, and yes, we have independence, but 90% of independents skew towards one of the parties. They, they, they almost always vote for one of the parties. So, um, so I think that we're, we have that. I think we're naturally trained. Like our society is just very dualistic. It's how we're taught to think. And then if you have any trauma, which most people do, but I have a lot, your brain, one of the ways that your brain keeps you safe is to sort things into good and bad. And so you are constantly, your brain is constantly scanning for the monster. Like who's the bad guy. So I know where the bad guy is so I can be safe and I'm the good guy. And I know where the good guys are. Those are the people that think like me and that's how I feel safe. Uh, and so to get to a point to say this person can think these things that are really harmful. I mean, I'm not saying they just think, you know, they like chocolate ice cream and I like vanilla ice cream. Like they believe some things that are really harmful and to say, um, you know, I don't like, I can see that and I can have an opinion about it. I can even make a judgment about it, but I don't move into being judgmental. Um, and I don't move into contempt and I don't move into all these other things because I recognize that that belongs to them. It doesn't belong to me and I don't have to take that on. Um, I can, I can recognize it and then I can do something about it. I can talk to them about it if I want to, I can recognize that it's pointless to talk to them about it and then go write a column about it. Or if I'm somebody else, write a letter to the editor or amplify some voices on social media that are actually being constructive, I could donate money. I could volunteer. There's a lot of things we can do that don't involve berating people who frankly aren't going to listen to us. 
you know, um, because nobody changes their mind because they're being condescended to and berated. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, um, it was a very radical shift to me. And I think, you know, I use the Christian paradigm of grace just because I also think it's very clarifying, uh, the idea of unmerited favor, because that also really goes against our sort of American ethos, which is we think everybody has to earn everything. Um, even though people actually don't earn everything, but we have this idea that they do. So the idea that you would just show grace towards somebody that doesn't in your mind deserve it, right? Like that's the point. Like that's what makes it grace. (laughs) So it's, they don't deserve it. So that's why it's grace. Um, And so I think that that helps a lot with clarifying that you don't have to come up with a reason um, because if you came up with a reason, then it's not really grace, right? Because then it would have somehow been earned. Yeah. And I, I love what you say in the book too, about how grace is kind of this multifaceted thing. It's not only, it's not only a gift that you're giving someone else, but it's also, it also gives you something as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, honestly, more than anything, it, it's about you. It's, uh, Sometimes other people will have some sense that you have shown them grace, but usually it's usually when you're judging people or, and I consider judgment and contempt kind of the opposite of grace. Um, the person who's suffering is you. The other person doesn't know what you, that you're, what you're thinking in your head about them. Very few people are walking up to people and saying like, you're this, you're that, whatever. Most of the time we're thinking it, or maybe we're talking to our friends or our spouses about it, or we're kind of laying in bed, ruminating about it. But the other person is oblivious, right? And in the worst case scenario, the other person's enjoying it. Hmm. Um, does anybody think Donald Trump cares that, so many people get so exercised about him. Like he cares to the extent that he enjoys it. You know, the trolling that goes on, um, is exactly that it's trolling. It is designed to get certain people upset and reactive. Right. Um, and so to, to say like, I'm not going to take the bait. I'm not going down that road with you. I don't, that's your, those are your beliefs. Um, they're very problematic. Um, I'm going to be over here being emotionally healthy and grounded and doing things to address them, (laughs) but I'm (laughs) not taking the bait and I'm not getting entangled with you. Um, which is exactly what we do when we judge people. We, we, we make their stuff, our stuff. And, um, and so I just, like I really, I rarely do it anymore. And honestly, a lot of judgment also is projection, um, which is very hard for people to hear, but just psychologically speaking, it is, um, when something really gets to us, it's because it's something that we're doing or somebody has done to us. And so we need to work on that. And I did a lot of that in the therapy, in my therapy. And so Whenever I judge somebody, I like write it down and I'm like, what's that about? Because, and a lot of people are going to say this doesn't make any sense, but I have, it's the difference between seeing it, recognizing it and going, it's not for me. Right. Like that's different. Like, Oh yeah, that's, that is really bad. And it's even scary and something needs to be done about it versus that person 
is so repulsive, so disgusting, right? That's a very different thing. And when you go into that space, there's something else going on. Um, and any of us who've spent time around really emotionally healthy people, which are like unicorns in our society, but if you know anybody <laughs> who's really emotionally healthy, you will recognize that they don't do that. They, yeah, they, they don't do that. The other thing it makes me think of too, it, it, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you no. off there, but it also makes me think of, and again, this is the history nerd in me. It, it makes me think of uh, kind of the propaganda techniques that were used during World War II mm. to kind of demonize the quote other, you know, in that case, the Jewish people, because we know, uh, psychologically speaking, when you're able to, to demonize and dehumanize a group of people, it makes it easier, uh, it, or to eliminate I guess them, it, uh, to eliminate them, but it, it removes the ability to even be empathetic. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's where we are, we are demonizing and dehumanizing. I mean, you can certainly see it. I was like, you know, sometimes when I'm driving around, I'll put on the right wing radio. And I was like, I mean, literally, I don't, I don't know which person it was cause I can't tell them apart, but it was, liberals are not even human, you know? I mean, wow. yeah. And I was just like, Oh my God, you know, like this is like, yeah, this is just full on dehumanization. And, you know, and I think that you see it too. I've seen it with, you know, COVID a lot of people who, you know, you know, sort of rejoicing. I don't know if rejoicing is the right word, but like just celebrating and mocking when people who are, you know, so-called COVID deniers die. And that's like, no, yeah, like that's just not like, these are people who are, have been completely blinded and indoctrinated. Um, and you know, they have caused harm for sure. Right. Cause some of these people are public people. There's no question, but um, you know, when I think of the people who I, and, and the people also don't like this when I say this, but this is how I feel. I have empathy for people who've been indoctrinated and blinded, you know, I, people who believe this stuff, who believe that Tucker Carlson is on the up and up and is on the level, you know, that's not really their fault right. for not being cynical enough to recognize that Tucker Carlson is not on the level, you know? And so who's the real problem? Tucker Carlson's the real problem. You know, it's the people who are telling them these things, you know, and, and that they trust because, and I know, and people will say, well, that's on them. How could they trust them? It's like, look, why would you be different if you grew up in the town that they grew up in and went to the church that they went to and had the education that they had and lived in the state that they had and only knew people who thought this way. Right. So it's, it's not, I do have empathy for them. And I, 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 I do, I, I keep my eye on kind of who is causing this. And it's a lot of grifters and a lot of people who are enriching themselves and getting more famous on it. And those are the people I have the hardest time with. And, you know, but I still out of self-preservation choose to not go down the road of, you know, labeling, like holding in contempt, you know, people because I'm just not interested in getting entangled with them. And I just feel like when I do that, I get entangled with them. They're like living in my head rent free and you walk around and you're miserable. And what does that accomplish? Yeah. And I, I think there, there are two things there. I think, um, number one, obviously we, we like the echo chamber, you know, it makes us feel safe and it's feels good to have people around you that just affirm everything you believe. 
And then, you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a very small rural town in the mm-hmm. middle of Ohio, you know, and there were, it was, it, it was very white, you know, yeah. not a lot of diversity there. A lot of people went to the same, you know, handful of churches that existed and, and you're right, you know, um, not too, too many dissenting opinions there. We'll, we'll say, um, so I, I feel like I understand that piece of it, you know, and, and then the other side of it too, you're right. I think that the people who are kind of peddling the bullshit basically are, people who 99% of the time are probably making a lot of money off of it. And are, so you've and are got like, probably vaccinated. You know what like, I mean? Like yes. that's the thing. That's what I'm Even saying. Trump's like, they're vaccinated. not on the level. Like it's just like ridiculous. You know, it's like right. they're working at places that mandate vaccines. Right. Right. And so it's just, yeah. And so, but I don't expect, especially because I come from a small town, I don't expect people who, you know, come from environments like that to be sophisticated, to be cynical, because I wasn't when I was growing up, you know? So, like, I just, it's not, that's not the problem. The problem is the leadership. Right. The problem are the pastors who are telling them, who are abusing their influence, right? It's like the leaders are the problem, and that's where the focus should be. Um, the leaders who have gotten people to this place by teaching them for the last, you know, many decades that being Republican is being Christian, that Mm -hmm. Democrats are evil, that Democrats are baby killers. I mean, all of this, like none of this could have happened without laying that groundwork, right? So if you lead people to that place where they believe that literally liberals are coming you know, to make your children homosexuals and, you know, all these things that they think have been indoctrinated into believing are wrong, um, then who's that on? It's on the leaders. Um, and so I don't think demonizing the average person who, you know, even like I was reading something yesterday about a, a guy who got kind of caught up in the yeah, you know, the big lie and was going to, you know, stop the steel rally to stop the steel rally. And he said, I have PTSD. And like, I feel like I just got out of a cult. Like he finally realized it was crazy. Right. And so it really is indoctrination. Um, so yeah. And it's not to say people aren't responsible for the decisions they make. Like I do believe, and I say in the book that, Having grace for somebody, having empathy for somebody is not the same thing as saying that they're not accountable for their behavior. You know, when people make bad decisions, they're accountable. And, but you can still have empathy and you can still treat them with humanity. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, we see this in the criminal justice system, which I think is like the best example of ungrace in our culture, which where people are treated as the sum of their worst moment or whatever bad thing they did, that's who they are. Right. And that they can't be different. They can't be better. Like, no, you cut them no slack. You overcharge them. You put them away for much longer than they need to be put away. You put them in a horrible system that is designed to keep them basically in the system. So versus saying, this is a person. So it's not that like, Oh, people commit a crime and they should just, nothing should happen. No, it's people commit a crime. They should be held accountable. Like 
in proportion to what they did and held accountable with humanity and held accountable with an eye towards restoration and always seeing like this is an opportunity for intervention to get somebody on a different path. And so I would use that in every situation. It's like the reason you're confronting somebody, the reason that you're trying to help them understand why what they believe is harmful shouldn't be because you want to win an argument or because it makes you feel more righteous. It should be because you, first of all, recognize the harm they're causing to other people, but they're causing harm to themselves also. So is your, your eye is towards wholeness. Your eye is towards helping this person versus, you know, owning them or whatever it is, right? The kind of way that it is like, I really like told that person off. I really gave it to them or whatever. And that's like, okay. I mean, like, (laughs) can you see that that person is confused? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because y- y- you have this great part in the book where um, y- you even talk about like cancel culture. And um, it made me think of, I saw this uh, video clip recently of, um, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. I'm, I'm not super familiar with his music, but I really kind of have enjoyed the clips of conversations I've seen that he's had lately. Uh, Talib Kweli, the mm-hmm. hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. He was talking with a comedian about, um, I think he's specifically talking about Joe Rogan and how he, like, they they disagree on a lot of things. And yeah. that was the, the the premise of the conversation is that they don't see it eye to eye politically and you know and certain things. But then he ran into him because they have common friends. And mm-hmm. so they were kind of forced to hang out with one another in a room and eventually ended up having a conversation. And the whole point of uh, of the story he's telling is that even though he and Joe Rogan probably fundamentally disagree on a whole host of topics, um, he was sitting across from a human being. Yeah. And and having this conversation with this real human being who is complex and nuanced and they were able to find some common ground and, and, and be friendly and that sort of thing. And it just made me think of the, the section of the book where you talk about um, cancel culture and how uh, we seem to have forgotten that, you know, human beings uh, evolve, hopefully, mm-hmm. and, and they grow. And I am not my tweets of 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, hopefully, right. hopefully not. Hopefully I've grown as a person. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. I, I thought that was a fascinating part of the book. Yeah, I think cancel culture, which I kind of put in quotes because I think it's a kind of problematic phrase, but it's it's complicated. You know, I think that sometimes what people call cancel culture is really people just being held accountable, people who were never held accountable, um, finally being held accountable. And so that's why I have a problem with it is that people will very quickly say, oh, the person who said the N-word at work and wouldn't apologize got fired. They've been canceled. It's like, I don't know, because I don't, I kind of feel like they should have apologized. And I kind of feel like it's 2022 and people shouldn't be saying the N-word. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like, that's <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just at some point, I think like for black people, they're like, really? Like, you don't know you're not supposed to be saying that? Like, 
it gets oversimplified. And so it's like, I actually think it is a really big deal if you're doing that. You know, if you, you know, and it may be a different phase of history, it wouldn't be, but like, I don't know, not anytime recently. So it's weird to me that like these things have been happening over the last couple of years and people have been like, they got canceled because they said the N word. It's like, on what planet is that okay for a white person to say that? I, I don't, you know, um, and sometimes there is accountability and sometimes that means somebody losing their job. You know, mm. and what's interesting is in, in a couple cases that I'm thinking of that I write about in the book, they were given opportunities. They were confronted about it and wouldn't change. So it's like, that's on you. Like, I don't know any scenario, especially as a woman where I am confronted at work about something and I'm just like, yeah, a few, I'll just do whatever I want. And I don't get fired. Like, it's just the entitlement right. is insane. So, so sometimes I'm like, that's not cancel culture. That's just accountability. These are just people who think they can do whatever they want. Um, sometimes it is so-called cancel culture in the sense that, and, and, and what I would consider cancel culture isn't somebody um, just being held accountable or even just losing their job. I consider, I, what I consider cancellation is something much more than that. So it's, you, yeah, okay, so you've lost your job, but you've also lost your reputation, like you can't come back from it. That's why it's called cancel, right? It's like I cancel a subscription. It's gone. The subscription's never coming back. <laughs> um, and right. so like that's, that's what it really would mean in that case. And, and, and we see that happen where it's like the person did something. They should be held accountable. But what's happening is like way beyond accountability. It's annihilation. Like they don't exist. It's like Kathy Griffin. There was a great story in the New York, New York Times about her where she says, I didn't get canceled. I got erased. You know, like she yeah. couldn't get work. She couldn't nothing. And it's like that's just not proportionate to what happened, you know. Right. And so especially because she's a comedian. And and so that that's where I think we get into this like, yeah, where people can't allow for any nuance of like a person can do a bad thing and not be a bad person. Right. It's like, which is certainly the, how we would want to be held accountable. Like we would not like, if we would go through our lives and the things that we've done that have been problematic, it's like, we wouldn't want people to be like, that's who you are. Right. They would be, it'd be like, that's a thing you did. And that was a problem, you know? And, um, and so, I think that, um, but I do think that if you, that a lot of times when I see it happening and I think exactly kind of what you were just saying, I think like that's a person and people just have lost sight of that. Like that is a person with a story, with a family, with, you know, oh, so you think they should be fired? Do they have a child with a health problem that needs health insurance? Do you even care about that? You know, like, are you even, and sometimes that is all true, and they still are going to lose their job because they did something and they and they and they didn't handle it well. And and sometimes that happens, but we have to recognize that that's not a minor thing. And people often say, "Oh, what's the big deal? They lost their job. They'll find another job." No, it's not how it works. And like, let's be honest about like losing your job is a big deal, it's, and it's a big it's a big deal, especially in a country where your health insurance is usually tied to your your job and all these other things. But even without that, it's a big deal to lose your job. So recognize, just recognize it, you know, that this is, that this is a big deal. And, you know, and I do think that when you can, um, 
when you know somebody or you spend a little time with them and they, and I cite studies in the book about this, where they find that the way to get people to depolarize is to ask them to think about somebody who, um, so they'll say to like a Democrat or Republican, do you know one person who belongs to the other party, not a friend, just somebody, you know, but you like them and you respect them. And when they do that, people immediately depolarize. Because they, they are like, oh, it's a person versus when they're just talking to them about what do you think about Democrats? What do you think about Republicans? It's like they're not even human beings. And so that's why, yeah, just even meeting a person for five minutes will often make you kind of go, oh, okay, I don't really like what they say and what they do, but like this is a person and there's more to them than this. That doesn't mean that they're not accountable for what they say and what they do. You know, um, and like I would say, like with Joe Rogan, I don't follow him that closely, but I have seen him really demonize people. And so I think that, you know, it would be nice also if Joe Rogan would stop demonizing people, um, you know. And so I, I think that you can get in a situation where you sometimes meet people and go, oh, they're actually really nice. And it's like, yeah, they are really nice, but they are also doing harmful things. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I don't think we should yeah. be like, oh, because they're nice and I had a nice conversation with it. None of this matters because <laughs> that's not true. Right. It's like, no, they still like the things they're doing that are harmful are still harmful. But because I've had this interaction with them, I'm able to do like, I'm. it's more easy for me to do what I'm saying that we should already be doing, which is when we're thinking about other people to say they're not just the thing. Like they're more than the thing. So let's see them as the totality. Let's recognize that they're doing that, that people are doing the best they can with the tools they have. You know, they have a story, they have trauma, they have experiences. Some people are, have depression, they have mental health issues. All of these things feed into how people are behaving. Um, and it makes it easier for us to understand how that could happen. Um, but it doesn't mean that we have to endorse it. Like, uh, there's a saying like empathy is not endorsement, right? So, but it is keeping, you know, we give up our own humanity when we dehumanize other people. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it, it really does always come back to, um, how it, how it's impacting you. It of course makes culture better if we all can treat each other with more humanity, but it's the immediate results are going to be for yourself. I love that. Yeah. And it, and it, it continues to go back to the fact that human beings aren't, we're not black and white. It, it's not that simple. Human beings are very, very complex. And I like what you said, you, you talked about the mental health aspect and, um, I've, you know, been a huge outspoken proponent of mental health and the fact that the mental health system in this country needs to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be more easily accessible. It needs to be more affordable. Um, but, yeah, as someone who deals with depression on a daily basis, I take my cocktail of happiness in the morning, you know. Um, <laughs> I have my I have my uh, vitamin D sun lamp on as yes. we speak because I live in gray, gray Ohio. So um, so I get like that that can greatly affect uh, the way that you engage with the outside world. Uh, and and that is not something that, you know, most people go around talking about openly like, oh, I'm sorry, I was awful to you yesterday. I was like dealing with deep, deep depression. That's not usually, you know, yeah, yeah. it's not usually the conversation, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talk about in my book how, 
when I started doing TV, it was right on the heels of a bunch of major traumas for me. And I was in a deep depression and I actually was suffering with suicidal ideation and, you know, really was in a bad place, but nobody had any idea. And in fact, when I wrote about it, um, around the uh, time that, uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had taken their lives, um, I wrote about it, which was, you know, 20 years later or whatever, the people who had, were spending literally like the, like I was working with were like, what? You know what I mean? Like nobody knew. Like, and so certainly nobody who was watching me on TV knew. And, um, you know, and I was like getting profiled in L magazine and, you know, in the New York observer. And I mean, I, you know, to the outside world, it looks like, wow, she's just got it all. And she's like, and meanwhile, I was like barely hanging on. Um, and so, you know, you don't, you just don't know what's going on with people. And, you know, and I always have to say, that doesn't mean people aren't responsible. I mean, even with mental health issues, we're still accountable, you know, but like, just have a little grace for people, you know, it's because you just don't know what's going on with them. I was just reading something uh, today about how Jessica Chastain, the actress, um, she had written on her Instagram page about how um, she was pro-choice or something and Mm -hmm. somebody attacked her for it. And, and basically how could you be pro-choice and that's so wrong and blah, blah, blah. And she went and she looked at the woman's page and she saw the woman was trying to get pregnant and she was doing IVF and, um, and didn't have enough money for it and had a GoFundMe page. And so this woman was just attacking her and, you know, Jessica Chastain looked at it and was like, um, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. And Jessica, Jessica Chastain saw, well, part of this is probably because, you know, she's trying to have a baby and she gave like $2,000 to her GoFundMe. Like that's grace. Wow. You know, that's grace. And, you know, I, I give also a story of like Sarah Silverman. Um, she was, you know, some guy sent her this really awful misogynist tweet and, you know, she could have like retweeted it and dragged him and everyone would have loved it. And she went and looked at his, timeline and she saw that he was suffering from really bad back pain and he was depressed and he was having all these problems. And so she like tweeted at him and was like, Hey, I see you're having a really hard time. And I, I know you're, you're better than this. And, um, I see your suffering and, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they ended up exchanging tweets. And then she like tweeted out to her followers. Oh, she found him a doctor, I think like for his back. And then she tweeted out, like, he doesn't have enough money, and so people donated money. And then in the end, he just was like, wow, I'm so sorry, and I just, I saw the back doctor, blah, blah, you know what I mean? So it's like, it... That's amazing. Yeah, and so having a little grace for somebody, like, can just completely change the dynamic of the interaction. And often people are behaving the way they're behaving because they're in pain, you know? Yeah. Yeah, one of the other things, too, that I think comes into play, and you mentioned this in the book, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is the role of shame and, and how that plays in a role and, and sometimes our inability to, to give grace. Because I think that, that definitely ties into what we're talking about mental health, too, because I think, unfortunately, in our, in our country, there's still, well, in other countries as well, but I think uh, even still today in 2022, there's a lot of stigma and shame that comes attached to admitting that you're, you're struggling with mental illness, you know, some still seen, unfortunately, or viewed as some sort of like weakness or something. Mm, Yeah. I, well, I also think a lot of people don't realize that they're struggling with mental health Mm. issues, right? They just think it's just the way they are 
the way they're wired or just the way they, you know, so, so a good example would be me. Like, I didn't know that I, I mean, like I knew when I had depression and anxiety, um, but what I didn't know was how traumatized I was. Like I associated trauma with like going to war or, you know, being in a plane crash or I, you know, I didn't really associate it with, I had, uh, you know, my father died, you know, young, you know, at 61 and then my grandmother died the following year. And then my stepfather got cancer and died. So I, it was a lot. I was in my thirties and, um, I just never associated that with trauma. Um, and it wasn't until I realized that I was traumatized, um, and that I was acting out of trauma, um, that I was able to start getting healthy. But I actually, I think looking back, not only did I not recognize that it was trauma, I actually thought it was kind of righteous, right? My ability to like sort good from bad. And I could just see so clearly like who's good and who's bad. And I just say it how it is and all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of even think that what you're doing is, is good or positive. Um, when in fact it's actually being driven by unhealth and, so I just think a lot of people don't know that. And I think if you go on Twitter right now, you'll see it, you know, and yeah. it's unconscious. I, people don't realize it. They're, they think that they're the good guys. And, and so I think that, and that was me. I used to live on Twitter and I just was, you know, very black and white. And, and that's how you win on Twitter, you know, is being very black and white. Everybody loves it. Um, and so um, you know, but it wasn't until I had dealt with my trauma. I went to an intensive program. I found a trauma informed therapist. Well, the therapist actually was the one who told me like, you, you have like a lot of trauma. <laughs> uh, and I was like, that's a little dramatic. You know, I just wasn't really, I, I mean, I kind of knew because I had the, like I had the chronic fatigue and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was like, and I had read some books and I was like, this feels like it's psychosomatic. So there's something going on and I don't know what it is. Like there's something that I haven't processed. So I was kind of there, but even as she was talking, I would be like, this is dramatic. This is overly dramatic. Like this wasn't. Um, but then when I went to this intensive program and I came back and I was like, all my health problems were gone and my anxiety was gone. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. And I had a much greater capacity for empathy and grace. I just, that I didn't have before because I didn't need to do that to make me feel safe. Like I didn't need to put people in the bad basket to feel safe. I didn't need to judge people to feel safe. Um, so yeah. So I think it's funny. I had a dream last night. I was just thinking about like who dreams things like this. I had a dream <laughs> that I was like, I don't know where I was, but I was with people who didn't support like universal healthcare. And I was just like, went on this rant about like why we need universal healthcare, particularly for mental health. And I just was like, you know, because it's just so true. Like if everybody would just yes. get help, like it would, <laughs> we would be such a better place. It's just so frustrating. Like when you watch it, you're like, oh my gosh. Like after I had done all this and then I got on Twitter, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a mess. Like this is people just traumatized people like attacking each other, you know? And it's, yeah. and it doesn't mean everybody on Twitter is traumatized because there's plenty of good people. I mean, well, everyone's a good person, but I mean, there's plenty of like healthy people, although if you're spending a lot of time on Twitter, I'm going to question your emotional health. Um, but, uh, but I think that, but there's a lot of good things that happen on Twitter, I guess is my point. Like 
Sure. You know, yeah. Me Too would not have happened without Twitter. Black Lives Matter would not have happened without Twitter. So, like, there's great things about Twitter, and Twitter can be like this amazing revolutionary tool. Most of the time, it's a cesspool of hate. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and, and a binary thinking. Like, it's just people, you're just like, oh my gosh, like, I just can't believe that you think that's what I just said, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah, and so it's just if everybody could kind of deal with their stuff, Uh, I'm with you. I'm I'm, I'm all for it. So one of the things that uh, I definitely want you to talk about, um, because I I realize we're running short on time, but there's um, such a huge part of the the book for me was um, uh, talking about the importance of boundaries Mm -hmm. and especially when it comes to grace. That is so crucial. Talk about that. I think it's like, it's, it's the main tool, right? Um, and because boundaries are an act of grace, it's, uh, I think I used to think of boundaries as a way to keep people out. Um, and, and, and I, and I kind of thought they were a little selfish, I think, um, because I was very codependent. Um, but I, um, I, I now see that, you know, I can't remember who explained it this way, but it's like boundaries are not like a wall to keep people out. They're a door to show people how to come in. So it's actually an act of grace to say to somebody, look, the thing, the, the things you're saying or the way you're talking to me or, you know, or the way you're interacting with me, it just, it doesn't work for me. And I want to be in a relationship with you and I want to be able to talk to you. And so here are the way here, here are just my boundaries, you know? And so, you know, like for me, I'm not going to do, you know, I'm not going to deal with somebody who's speaking to me contemptuously, who's yelling at me, who's um, gaslighting me. Um, I, you know, I just, I'm just very clear about it. I don't, I don't need to be mean about it. It's just like, I'm just not doing that. And so, that keeps you from going down the road of judgment and contempt because you're just clear about what is okay with you and what isn't okay with you. And when you don't use boundaries, then you build up resentment, right? Because the person keeps doing it and you keep sitting there and you're just like, Ooh, you know, and, and then finally one day you explode, you know, or you walk around judging them and holding them in contempt because you're just so upset about the things that they're saying and doing to you versus just going, Hey, mm -mm, no, I don't do that. Like this isn't, we're not having this conversation, you know, like if somebody started trying to talk to me about the election was stolen, I would just be like, I I just am not talking to you about this. You know, it's, um, if I thought I could convince them, I might give it a try. But once, if if they started to gaslight me, then I think I would just be like, I can't, I'm not doing this, you know? And it, and it is hard for me to imagine being in, in a relationship with somebody who, a friendship or whatever with somebody who does that. So everybody has to have their kind of, you know, what they can, what they can tolerate. And I think, you know, I think the family relationships are the hardest relationships. And I think that that's where this book is probably the most helpful. Um, because when it comes to friendship or or close friendships, I, I mean, I have had some people email me and say, you've saved some of my friendships. Um, because I really felt like the only option was to, completely cut them out. And now I see that I can use boundaries, um, and that I can just be clear about what is okay to talk about and what's not okay to talk about. And we're just going to have to agree to disagree on some things. And, um, and so I think that, 
it's, yeah, it's just been very, very revolutionary for me to just be able to, to, to not judge the person. And I had a lot of resentment because I would sit there and I wouldn't say anything. And one of the examples I use in the book is, you know, I always got interrupted, which is a big thing. Like women are always getting interrupted and please don't anybody email me and tell me that like men interrupt <laughs> each other. Cause they don't. Um, and <laughs> I just am reading a book right now about all the studies that have been done on it. And when they put a room of a bunch of men in a room, they don't interrupt each other. Um, but you put a woman in there and everybody interrupts her, including the other women. Um, and so hmm. I was always being interrupted on set. Like literally I just would say, I'd be halfway through a sentence and one of the men would just start talking and it just happened all the time. And I got so resentful and to the point where I would start to snap. Right. And so I finally just decided that like, I'm going to just start really being clear about this. And so I started like, when someone would do it, I just would stop and be like, hey, why did you just start talking in the middle of my sentence? And it didn't take very long for people to stop doing it because then it was like kind of embarrassing for them. And then people on Twitter would attack, you know, so it was like, and then, and then they stopped doing it and it still happens occasionally, but I have to say it doesn't happen that often. And so I don't have the resentment anymore. I was very clear about my boundaries. Whereas before I just was like getting angry and not really doing anything about it. Um, and so, yeah. And so you have to like, just be very, very clear with people about, about what you're okay with and what you're not okay with. And so say you, uh, have a parent who is, you know, has uh, different political views than you and they're coming at you like with the libtard stuff and all I see this 60, 70 year old people, you know, like to their children. I mean, it's just, it's so crazy. And, um, you know, just to say like, look, we're not, I, I want to talk to you about this, but we can, these are the boundaries we have to put around our communications. And if you can't adhere to those boundaries, then we can't talk about this. It's just, yeah, that's good. those are your options. And, mm-hmm. and then you have to enforce them. Um, but like you, it's not, um, you know, arguing with them. And I have a whole you know chapter on healthy conflict. If you want to change somebody's mind, which is very, very hard, but it can happen there are ways to do it. And it's usually, it's not bombarding them with facts. It's not yelling at them. It's not telling them how stupid they are. It's, you know, it, it does involve much more empathetic listening and sharing of stories and, and things like that. So I think there are ways to do it. Um, but it, sometimes you also have to recognize sometimes you're just not gonna, it's just not going to happen. Um, you know, it may happen over time cause they, they, um, you know, they see you. I mean, I've seen this happen with my friends who, you are gay and grew up in evangelical families. What changed their parents' minds was never the arguments. It was just over time, just seeing them, seeing them with their partners. Right. It just, um, and relationship really. Um, it it wasn't the statistics and the, this and that. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think that, you know, but also at the same time, I have some, you know, gay friends who've also said like, that's just a deal breaker for me. If you don't inform my relationship, we're not in relationships. Everybody has to decide what their line is, you know, and it's different for different people. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, last question. Have you ever seen, have you seen the, the, the movie that just came out on Netflix? Don't look up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great, great critique on uh, society uh, today, and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not uh, convinced that we wouldn't just watch ourselves get <laughs> annihilated by a comet at this point. <laughs> but you give me hope that maybe, oh, yeah. maybe we won't. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, who would ever thought that a vaccine could become partisan? Right. Right. So like, it's like, even though that actually was about climate change, the movie, because they made it before COVID. Right. Um, right. But it's like, like, cause you can understand a little more how climate change got politicized, even though it actually used to be something that most people accepted and whatever, but it's got, it's understandable how it got politicized because it involves less coal and less oil and, you know, things that, you know, businesses care about and that kind of stuff. But, but the vaccine, I don't think I, anyone would have predicted that that would become like a political right. thing. So that's where like, yeah, could we, be, could we politicize an asteroid? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, it's funny I, about the vaccine. I remember looking at one of my friends. I'm like, I'm like, this is crazy. I'm like, the virus doesn't give a shit who you voted for. Yeah. You know, it doesn't care which party you support. It's going to get you. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. like it's, it's very, uh, you know, un- unbiased. Like it'll go after everybody. Like this is crazy, but yeah. Hopefully, uh, through through people like yourself, uh, I think this book is amazing. Um, I, I think it's uh, timely. I think we 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 all could stand to give each other uh, a lot more grace and uh, and allow for the nuance that that is uh, being a human being. Yeah. So I thank you for uh, for writing this. I thank you for coming on and talking oh, about it as well. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, before I let you go, where can people go to stay up on top of your work and get a copy of the book? Uh, yeah, you can buy the book pretty much anywhere. Um, you know, Amazon, whatever, your local bookstore. Um, and I'm on social media. I'm not the most active person, but um, it's at Kirsten Powers. That's I, I write about that in the book. Like My ability to have grace for other people is pretty closely connected to how much time I spend on social media. So, um, probably the place I spend to the extent I spend any time on social media, it's more Instagram though. I do try to post stuff on Facebook and Twitter. So it's just at Kirsten powers. Perfect. I am with you. I like Instagram. You can post a picture and walk away. Exactly. You don't have to have a conversation with somebody. about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, perfect. We'll put, uh, I'll put the uh, links in the show notes for everybody. Uh, go out and grab a copy of the book. It's amazing. And, uh, thank you again for coming on. This is great. All right. Thank you so much.
apart And they said, Jen, you must go But I know they need 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.